Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the remarkable human being on the show, Mr. Trevor Cook, CEO of Commercial and General. Trevor is one of the state's most highly regarded property and finance leaders and has an outstanding track record in funds management globally, a wealth of experience in the property and health sectors. In his role as CEO, Trevor provides commercial and general with a competitive advantage as the company continues to expand its national footprint. He is an experienced operator with a diverse set of skills which enables commercial and general to deliver a truly unique and complete business solution across funding and investment models, design and development, program and project management, feasibility analysis, building, marketing and sales. Trevor's portfolio of projects includes the Calvary Adelaide, ADA O'Connell Street, and the Australian Bragg Centre for Proton Therapy Research. Before joining Commercial in General, Trevor was the Managing Director and Head of Global Real Estate Asia-Pacific for UBS Global Asset Management and was responsible for the delivery and management of the company's regional direct property investment capabilities. In that capacity, Trevor was also Director of UBS Mitsubishi Corp Realty and the manager of Japan Retail Fund and the Industrial and Infrastructure Fund, two of Japan's largest REITs with more than $10 billion of assets under management. In Australia, Trevor was responsible for UBS Growcond and its $500 million investment into the 2018 Commonwealth Games Village in Southport, Queensland. And he was also the managing director of AMP Brookfield, a global joint venture managing $8 billion worth of assets. Further to this, Trevor sits across multiple boards for Junction Australia, Asia Pacific Real Estate Association, Committee for Adelaide, and he's the Division Councillor for Property Council of Australia. So where do I begin with this episode? It, it feels like we talked about so much and throughout the conversation, Trevor answers all my questions with a calming and philosophical approach. We spoke in detail about his journey from where he started, where he was born in Canada then his trips all around the world to where he finds himself today as CEO of Commercial in General. We deep dived into his personal life and how he manages his time and having so many roles, the importance of values and how they help him drive his behavior, his beliefs into open door culture and meritocracy culture, and the culture of Commercial in General and how that allows him to live a balanced life with family and business. We also go into detail about the characteristics of being a great CEO and what it means to lead with integrity. There's some really great advice here for aspiring CEOs and leaders. We then went on to chat about commercial in general, its history, its journey, its purpose, and some of their amazing projects such as 88 O'Connell and the Australian Bragg Centre. Trevor then shares his thoughts on South Australia and how we can attract more investors and capital into Australia, his expectations coming out of the Omicron situation, how the pandemic has been handled politically. And then we also talked about how he attributes part of his great mental health to meditation and mind mapping. There's a lot in this episode, but I know you're absolutely going to love it. And if you'd like to learn more about some of the other amazing leaders that we've had on the Creating Synergy podcast, 
then be sure to jump on at our website at synergyiq.com.au or check us out at Creating Synergy Podcast on all the podcast outlets. Cheers. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy Podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host. And today we have the great man, Trevor Cook, CEO of Commercial in General. Welcome to the show. Thanks heaps, Daniel. Great to be here. We started... uh, when you walked in today, we started chatting. You've uh, done a little bit of an injury to your uh, to your shoulder recently. Well, firstly, I've discovered what a rotator cuff is, <laughs> um, which uh, which I didn't know until uh, earlier this week. Yeah, but uh, I woke up um, on the River Murray on Friday with a uh, a dodgy rotator cuff, as it turns out. Going too hard on the jet skis. On, on the jet skis. The, uh, absolutely. Uh, my midlife crisis, I, re- I turned 50 last year. Um, and with COVID making international travel basically off the radar, my wife and I bought a pair of jet skis. Um, so we've been uh, been out exploring the uh, the beauty of the water of South Australia yeah. um, over the course of the year. Lots of fun. Great fun. Great yeah. fun. Um, you don't need a license or anything. You do need boat oh, licenses. Oh, you do? Yeah, absolutely. So the whole family got our boat license. Uh, my two daughters and my wife and I all have our boat license. And um, probably the sight nobody would want to see is me in a towable being drug <laughs> along the River Murray on a little tube going at around 70 kilometers an hour as my wife takes revenge at every opportunity. And, and, and did you fall off and hurt your shoulder in that way or you just woke up? I wish more? I had that story. You know, it's like the fishing story where you say the one that got away. I wish I had that. But honestly, it was just one of those things where you wake up and go, I have no idea how I've done this. You've torn the your wear shoulder. The wear and tear. Of- you know you're getting, uh, you're getting towards the end <laughs> when you wake up ex- with it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, thank you for coming on. It's it's a I'm, it's actually an honour to sit here with you, and I know in everything that you've achieved. So uh, thanks again for coming on. Absolute pleasure, and uh, and um, you're being way too generous in your compliments <laughs> from the outset. But you know, you can always feed my ego. I'm okay with that. Uh, you, you'll get a bit of it through there. It's, it is my style. The uh, the um, one thing I've always been obsessed with, and I was really keen to sort of pick your brain on this throughout this podcast, was is is waking up every morning with the desire to improve and grow in that day, right? So 1% every day, you know, improvement. I, I really take that model and method in my life. And and you were CEO for Commercial in General. You're Deputy Chair um, for the Board and Chair Investment Committee for Junction Australia. You're the di- Director and Chair for the Australian Chapter for Asia Pacific in the Real Estate Association, Deputy Chair for Committee for Adelaide and Division Councillor for the Property Council. So you... There's a fair bit on your plate there. How I, mean, I think my question comes from how do you how do you manage your day? How do you manage your your work schedule in in amongst all that that you have to do? Work in progress would be the honest <laughs> would be the honest answer to that. And um, I've tried a variety of different strategies um, over time in terms of what is the most optimal way to manage time mm-hmm. and, and prioritization. And it's still a learning journey, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Um, and I've done that with and without EAs. And a really interesting experiment I'm yeah, doing right yeah. now, and I've been for some time without an EA, and self-managing my own diary yeah. to actually control the priorities, um, which surprisingly is working better than I expected it mm. to. And so I'm right now in the midst of sort of working out whether I maintain that for myself. Because technology now makes it so much easier to manage yourself. Yes. Um, and so I've always been big on on the utilization and harnessing of technology as a, as a tool for optimizing efficiency. Absolutely. I use our CRM at HubSpot for that very reason. I don't have an EA or anything like that, so I have to manage my own diary. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, HubSpot is... 
I use their technology. You can actually put parameters around times and dates and gaps and everything like that and just send people the link. And they That's can right. And simple things like planning out your day. That was probably something I learned. Um, uh, one of the CEOs that I learned probably the most from a guy by the name of Peter Verwer, who was CEO of the Property Council. Mm-hmm. Um, intellectually, just a giant um, but extremely disciplined in the way that he planned his day. Task management. Ultimately, the guy was a strategic genius who reduced everything down to task management mm. and, and sort of instilled in me that that uh, approach. So what does your diary look like then? Um, it's full. So yeah. generally speaking, um, depending on um, the issues that are alive at any one point in time, because typically, as, as I've described my job in the past, CEOs are often like janitors. You're coming in to clean up messes mm-hmm. often. Yep. Um, while yep. things are going extremely well, um, you get the, the pleasure of dealing with strategy and forward looking in terms of business growth and development and relationship management and the like. But often what you're dealing with, particularly in the line of work that we're in, complex projects have issues at any one point in time. So it's about prioritizing the issues that are going on across the portfolio of projects that we have on our plate at one point in time and directing my energy towards that so when you when you say that you're trialing between managing your own diary and between an EA what are the benefits of an EA versus the benefits of managing it yourself um one degree of separation is often the benefit yeah. of an EA yeah. to be perfectly honest yeah. in terms of trying to um avoid people setting your priorities for you yeah um finding that person who understands what my priorities are at any mm. point in time is, is difficult yeah um, work for so many of us intrudes into our personal life. Mm-hmm. And so having um, support that supports your family as much as supports you and your job becomes really important. So, for example, it's really important in my life that if I do have an EA, that they have a very strong relationship with my wife because she's managing our family. <laughs> yes. and she's managing more than I am at Absolutely. one point in time. Yes. Um, and that takes, that takes a special person to be able to manage personal as well as professional. Correct. Um, and so... At the same time, when I'm doing it myself, I kind of know what's going on. Mm. I have my wife managing our day life. We're in constant communication and, and managing those priorities. I've got a question about management of family, but I want to talk to you about your, your what you just mentioned in regards to being a janitor. Mm. How do you plan your diary if or your, your time if you are constantly putting out or cleaning up those messes? How, how do you structure it in a way that you are thinking strategically as a CEO probably should? So there's, um, it's critical to have a plan, and then it's also equally as important to recognize things are never going to go according to plan. Okay. So um, the ability to pivot and to respond and to be dynamic mm-hmm. um, is a value, I think, that not only for the job I'm in, but the organization as a whole that, that, um, that I work in is a, is a key attribute. So because things happen. Um, at any one point in time, and you need to be able to respond to them. You need to be able to respond to market. You need to be able to respond to issues that are occurring at any one point in time. So it's absolutely critical to maintain that dynamism mm-hmm. and the ability to pivot. And that's centered around communication. That only works if you have a very established communication network within your organization so people know when to come in and out with that level of information that's needed. How do you set up those? I anchored in trust. So um, I guess... Um, the starting point for me is values in, yeah. in everything we do. It's embedded in the way that we think about who comes into the organization and who stays in the organization. Mm. 
um, because frankly, if you've got the right set of values, that drives behaviors and behaviors are what underpin our ability to trust one another in an organization so that I both can give the autonomy needed and the accountability and responsibility for people to take decisions that they need to take, but then to know that they know when to come to me with the issues that need to get resolved more at my level than necessarily at theirs. And that is not something that you can just turn on. That mm. takes time. So we focus on the retention of our people for the long term in our organization. If you think about the projects we're involved in, in, in the real estate development space, they're often very long projects as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, Calvary Hospital from the idea, the inception of the idea to the opening of the hospital was a seven-year journey. So it's critical that if we're that for us that we have the same people travel that journey with mm -hmm. us. So many people don't. The turnover um, can be a real issue when you lose corporate knowledge and you lose continuity, you lose the breakdown of trust. Absolutely. And that just makes work all that much harder. Makes the customer experience a little That's less right. as well. So, so in that regard, I think probably one of the lessons I learned earlier on in my career was around collaborative interviewing mm -hmm. um, and making sure that there's um, very, very limited captain's calls, if you will, to use an Aussie expression, yeah. um, in our organization and that um, the hiring of people coming into an organization is one built around consensus mm -hmm. and built around a collaborative interviewing process where people get to see different aspects of our organization. So we're on full display to the people that are coming okay. into the organization, um, warts and all, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we get a variety of perspectives on those values and behaviors so that it's not a one-off in an interview sort of scenario yeah. where people can put their best feet forward, but in fact, it, it stands up to the scrutiny of others throughout the process. That's brilliant. So we are a, a consulting company that helps businesses with their culture and change. And so values is front of mind in pretty much every project that we work on. So uh, it's music to my ears hearing you do that. So re recruitment from a values-based approach is amazing and, and kudos to you and the team for doing that. How do you hold people account to those values as they go through their working career? Um, I'm pleased to say there's, lim there's been limited instances where I've had to hold people account to their values. Mm -hmm. um, it's about the evolution um, and, and um, of the organization and people within that value set. And I guess what I mean is we, bring, we have a history of being able to bring people in and seeing them grow into roles that they never even saw themselves capable of yeah. doing. And that they are often faced with new challenges which put pressure on their value system mm. because there's the expedient and there's the right sometimes and those two things are not always aligned. Um, we do that through um, constant communication so and that is informal so the informal is really important in our organization as much as the formal. Um, we are a family-owned business, ultimately, mm -hmm. yeah. and we have that approach where it's doors open. We're very flat hierarchically, but, we've, but we are underpinned by a meritoc meritocracy in terms of the way that we yeah. reward, incentivize, and develop people through. Um, so for me, it's about that constant informal communication and people knowing that they can knock on the door and say, here's the situation I'm in. What's the best way to deal with it? Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Just jumping back again to the management of diaries and uh, and the family, I'm really interested in something that I always uh, grapple with is the, the, the 
push between family and business and life and all the above that is is in that ecosystem. So how do we fully pursue and realize our visions while at the same time cultivating those loving relationships with families? Do you, do you ever get caught up? I get it wrong all the time. Yeah. Um, it's and and it, it's not an endpoint. It's a journey. Um, and that one's for you, honey. In case you're listening, um, <laughs> she will. Be. What's her name? April. 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 Excellent. And and no, it, it's absolutely correct. And there was um, a mentor of mine, Mark Ford. Mark was the CEO of Deutsche Bank in Australia, um, who was struck down at a relatively early age with um, a kidney illness that forced him to retire as CEO. And he was the first chairman that I had um, at Property Council. And there's an image in my mind with Mark and his wife and April and I having dinner. And he said, you've got to create boundaries, Trevor, if you're going to survive long term in terms of what you're doing. Um, and he's right. Um, and I still try to do it. And I think I'm better at it now than I was at 35, 40, 45. But I'm still not there with it. And mm -hmm. it's a, it is, it, in reality, it is, it is probably the greatest challenge in my life is balancing my ambitions and aspirations for the organization that I lead relative to the aspirations and, and love that I have for my family. Mm. Um, and so it, it is day-to-day -day management. I fortunately have a very supportive family who are interested in what we do, who get involved in it, who support me in it, um, and that makes it a lot easier. But um, I, I suspect I'm not, though, an orphan um, in terms of that <laughs> being one of the key issues. It is, it is one part of my life that I am constantly in review is how do I improve this? And, you know, core value for mine is growth, right? And, and that is not just in my own development in business or but it's within my family life. And, yeah, it's one just the hours can run out. <laughs> and, and there's an attrition rate in families in corporate life. Um, I worked in investment banking um, in a Swiss bank for, for some time. And um, I ran the Asia Pacific sleeve of a of a global portfolio, um, and that that was brutal in terms of travel. Sort of, it peaked at around two hundred days a year, uh, being away from the family, yeah, wow. which which was difficult. But I remember there was a pivotal moment for me sitting around a boardroom table in Zurich, um, and looking around at all my colleagues and realizing I was the only person who wasn't either just recently divorced or divorced, mm. and and going through breakup of family. Um, and it was it was the nature of that and that culture was toxic to families. Mm. Um, the organization I'm in today couldn't be further away from that. Yeah. I work in an organization where a husband and wife work in the same business together. Yeah. Um, the kids come into the office. Um, so while we are while we're our aspirations are high, everyone's highly driven and work hard. We bleed between personal. Uh, and professional in a way that big institutions struggle to adapt to. Mm. I think that's actually one of our real advantages in being able to attract and retain people is recognition of that. We create bespoke situations for people because we can. Big institutions are bound by highly rigid policies and a risk um, and compliance mindset mm -hmm. um, uh, at the heart trying to preserve the company as opposed to the focus on the individual and how that individual's long-term Performance is going to benefit the company as a whole. Brilliant. Yeah, in in all amongst that, I've, I'm hearing so many great examples of your previous and past life. Tell us a little bit about your story and and how you came to be 
the CEO of commercial in general here in South Australia? It's the great unplanned career. <laughs> um, uh, born in, in, in a very small village in Nova Scotia, Canada. Okay. Um, put it in context, uh, 80 people, three last names yeah. <laughs> um, was, uh, was, was the place. And Brilliant. I um, finished, uh, finished high school there and backpacked Europe mm-hmm. um, and discovered a love of traveling through that. Um, in my first years and, and commenced my undergraduate degree in Canada. Um, I did an undergrad in politics and wanted to go into law and was going to do my law degree in Canada and do an exchange over here in Australia. Um, I came to Adelaide in 1993 as a postgrad law student um, with ambitions of being an international human rights lawyer. Oh, well, uh, would go. have been if we were having this interview in, in that point, that's, yeah. that would have been where the aspiration was. <laughs> But found my way through an accident, really through an internship program that the University of Adelaide ran, a guy by the name of Clem McIntyre and Dean Gench. Dean, um, I don't know if he's a well-known in South Australian political circles, is a, is a Flinders long-term, yeah. set up an internship with Parliament. And I, um, in my honours year in law, uh, became an intern to a backbench MP. The backbencher was a guy by the name of Ian Evans and Ian... Um, Subsequently, John Olson became premier. Ian became a cabinet minister. And in my honors year, pulled me out of law school and said, do you want to be a political advisor? So I found my first part of my career actually working in politics. Um, And uh, that just shattered the illusion of politics as an intellectual pursuit relative to the practice of politics in a a state context. Um, I did that for three years. That was during what was known as the Motorola inquiry, which ultimately led to to John's downfall, mm-hmm. unfairly, I think, in, in today's political context in terms of what's acceptable in the political domain, there's no way John would have been forced to resign mm-hmm. uh, today um, compared, to, compared to what we see in today's sort of political domain. Um, and I did that for three years, didn't want to necessarily get branded into a political apparatchik, if you will, um, and jumped ship and went to work for the Property Council of Australia um, for a guy by the name of Brian Moulds. Brian has been a lifelong mentor and now is a close friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's taught me a lot of things over the years. Um, and stayed here until 2004. Um, and at that point, uh, was tapped on the shoulder to go across to Sydney to set up what was the International and Capital Markets Division of the Property Council. At that point, this is pre-GFC. And there was an enormous amount, for the first time, of international capital flowing into Australian real estate. And at the same time, Australian listed companies were investing in offshore real estate. And so that opened up a whole set of issues that needed to be resolved in in the real estate capital markets domain, mainly around international tax and the introduction of international accounting standards, which are technical and sort of boring issues, but opened up a whole network to me. I I had the opportunity to uh, work out of the OECD at that point on international tax treaty reform. We actually brought the OECD for the first time to a meeting outside of Paris um, into Sydney and ultimately resulted in tax treaty reform across the board. Same with the introduction of international accounting standards. And through that really got to understand international capital markets for real estate and and how international capital flows worked. Mm -hmm. Um, I did that for a few years and then the CIO of AMP, Chief Investment Officer of AMP, was on the board of the Property Council, and then he tapped me on the shoulder to go work for AMP. AMP had a, this was at the beginning of the collapse of financial markets in 2008. To give you an idea, because some people may be too young to remember this, 
The real estate markets fell 75%. The listed markets fell at this point. AMP had a joint venture with um, a group out of Chicago who just recently got purchased by Brookfield Asset Management, a large Canadian institution. Um, Great organization and a lot of the best advice I ever had came out of that organization. And essentially what they needed someone to come in and work out whether it was an orderly divorce or um, a renewal of vows, essentially, in a joint venture context um, in the wake of a collapse. This was a $6 billion fund that had fallen to $1.5 billion in assets under management yeah, wow. without a cent going out the door. That was all market movement. Yeah, wow. um, and a large book of business was out of Japan. Um, and the Japanese um, are extremely diligent in terms of how they manage their managers is probably the, yes. the politest way I could say it. I remember yes. we were logging up to 150 to 200 questions from them a day in terms of the performance of global markets because they were then feeding that back through their distribution channels. Um, in Japanese banks at the time, and, and still today in fact, um, because interest rates were so low in Japan historically for such a long period of time, if um, someone walks into a retail bank in Japan and goes to put money on deposit, they would say, well, well I can pay you 0% interest, or you could put it into the Nikko Asset Management Global Real Estate Fund and get 5% on your money. And so that distribution channel was enormous through Japan, um, and the need to service that during that period was extraordinary, but that's another, that's another, that's sort of, that's another rabbit hole in and of itself. <laughs> but that taught me a lot to go through the stress of a collapse of the financial markets at the same time as the breakup of a joint venture and the need to recapitalize things is where a lot of the most interesting lessons I learned about culture and values actually mm. uh, came out of. So I stayed with AMP until 2012, saw that joint venture right through the cycle. AMP, as it has been known to do on several occasions, decided to, um, once we had the joint venture, we grew it from $1.5 billion to $8 billion. Um, when the markets began to recover, um, we raised significant amounts of money out of the Middle East and out of Asia and Australia, for that matter. AMP decided to end the joint venture, um, and I turned the lights off on the JV and went to work for a sovereign wealth fund, QIC, um, in Queensland. And this was in Campbell Newman's first term, and the generally accepted view at that time was uh, Newman would privatize QIC. It was a $75 billion asset manager at the time with a 96% cost to income ratio. What I mean by that is for every dollar coming through the door, it had 96 cents of expenses against it. (laughs) Put it in context, um, for a typical sort of uh, money manager, your cost to income ratio should be 70% would be the best practice target. So there was a lot of work to be done in preparation for privatization. So that was a weird job. That was the first time I was sort of brought in as a hatchet man, if you will. Mm. So. It was really to come in with the, uh, to assist another guy in a complete restructure of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that while I was talking to UBS. So I, I carried that out as if it was a special project at QIC and then went across to UBS to run their Asia-Pacific real estate business, which was a direct real estate platform um, centered out of Sydney, Singapore, Hong Kong, Beijing, and Tokyo. Um, and that was really about the uh, raising of capital for the deployment into Asian real estate. And did that for a while and was still married. And when I looked at each other and said, wow. Uh, (laughs) There's a fair bit in there. (laughs) That's right. We're tired. Um, uh, April's um, April's dad had passed away. Um, uh, Mom got a little bit older. There was a lot of pull factor to want to come back. The kids had been away from any sense of family. I had been traveling. How old were they at this this point? 
Uh, so Holly would have been 15 and Ginger 11. Okay. And probably the, the, uh, the greatest shame in my career um, was uh, looking at uh, April and looking at Ginger and realizing I had an 11-year-old that I've known for about five years because the rest of the time I've been traveling and been, been away, away been yeah. absent. Um, and so that was a real defining moment for us, and, and we made the decision to come back. Um, and fortuitously, that was just at the same time that Jamie McClurg, who was the, the owner of Commercial in General, was looking to uh, bank Calvary Adelaide Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a great platform and great opportunity for me to come to come back into. Okay. That was probably a longer answer than you wanted. No, but. no, it's amazing. I, I do want to unpick one thing. You mentioned and a big part of our the listeners on our show are very interested in the culture aspect. And you said there were some of the key learnings can't remember exactly which um, company, but it, Brookfield. Brookfield. That's it, one of the key learnings from a culture point of view. Can you elaborate on? on, on yeah. So um, money management is, as you would expect, um, quite an intensively competitive uh, space. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes all sorts to to sort to get involved in it, and traditionally in in money management, people would tolerate bad behaviors of uh, rainmakers. Mm-hmm. Right, so there would be some really good, for lack of, without dumbing it down too much, like stock pickers mm-hmm. who are exceptional at their job, but are, if I can say this, assholes in the way yeah. that they carry out the rest of the organization. Yeah. Kim Redding, who is the CIO um, of Brookfield's uh, listed real estate business at the time, um, was prepared to stand up against that, and so he he really showed me. The way, and and he was inspired by a guy by the name of Jim Ware, um, who did a lot of um, empirical research in in money management and why culture counts. It's the classic culture eats strategy for lunch. Mm-hmm. And if you allow a bad um, influence into an organization and you reward them handsomely, because you got to remember these are these are very highly paid yes. people, and it's obvious that that's going on. The cost of that to the organization as a whole is far greater than the benefit you derive mm. from it. So it is, it is in a sense, a very logical business decision to make. And that was, that was really the emphasis. It is not one that, that is being made for um, benevolent reasons or just because you feel that the value is right. There's actual value creation in refusing to allow bad behavior. In other words, there's value in culture. Correct. And I think that that's something that... Um, uh, came starkly into view, particularly in situations of high degrees of stress. Mm-hmm. So with financial markets falling and constantly having to manage investors' expectations and threats of pulling their money and the like, that's when you really need a united team and people united against a common set of values, people you can trust and rely upon, um, and people who will do the right thing. And often the right thing is nothing more than bringing the issue to the table, not hiding it, not burying it under the table, mm. not pretending it isn't happening. Um, and so, yeah, so Kim Kim was really an important influence um, in my professional career. Oh, everything you just said there was music to my ears. What, what is your approach to dealing with that asshole, so to speak? You know, you have these really amazing and intellectually – uh, superior when it comes to delivering mm. what their job requires, but their human behavior or their behavior towards their peers or, or, or counterparts within the business is, is subpar. How do you manage that as a CEO or as a leader? Um, 
the the method of execution is always going to be customized to the individual that you're dealing with on it. But I guess first and foremost, um, I'd say call it out. Mm. And call it out in the first instance in a way that's non-threatening, that is designed to try to help somebody who may want to help themselves or recognize mm -hmm. it. Um, so there have been cases, um, I, I've worked with people who were genuinely unaware yeah. of how they were being perceived. And that's that's the good ones, yeah. right? Those are the ones that you that, can... That's what you wish everyone, That's, yeah. that's what you wish, yeah. right? Because yeah. um, all of us make mistakes. All Nobody is perfect. Everybody, if they have a, a growth mindset like the one that you spoke about at the very beginning, um, then that's something people can work with. If they're not, you move them on. So mm -hmm. I, I have, at this point in, in my life and my career, um, I won't make that trade. I won't keep the rainmaker mm -hmm. for the sake of uh, destroying the culture and values of the organization. Is that an unpopular decision in context from return on investment? Um, it can be, mm. yeah. Yeah, it can be because um, a lot of what we do involves multiple counterparties. Yeah. And not all of our counterparties share our values. And I wish I could say that the only people I deal in the marketplace with are people who share yeah, our values, no, but that's yeah. unrealistic. Correct. So what has happened on more than one occasion is where we make the culture call and the value-based decision, and our counterpart doesn't want to, often because it may not be embedded in their own organizational values. Yeah. right? And that could be uh, cultural because mm -hmm. – cross-border, yeah. uh, multinational sort of transactions that we're involved in, um, or just at the heart of the leadership of the organization. So it has caused it, it has caused um, stress in corporate relationships, but I believe it has um, solidified our organization because there's nothing worse than rhetoric, hollow rhetoric that isn't backed up by action. Yeah. Um, that that will ultimately destroy an organization, in my view. Absolutely. Kudos to you for taking that approach. It, it is hard as a role in this CEO gig to uh, to make that unpopular decision. How ha have you? Not that I want to point out the "I told you so" moment, but <laughs> have you ever had been in a situation where you've realized and seen the benefit straight away from removing a certain individual? Um. Rarely is it a pop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what it is is it stems often a, a, a decline. Mm -hmm. It can stem an issue, stop the bleeding, if you will. Yeah. Stop the hemorrhaging on an issue. Um, but it does require, because you you create gaps in your organization, mm. right? So notwithstanding the fact that the person may be a negative cultural influence on the organization, which is causing issues over here, the reality is they may be very competent at, at the skill yeah. that you require in an organization Correct. and replacing that um, can be difficult. Mm. So it is imperfect. Um, gets back to recruitment. Yeah. Because the job of recruitment is to, one of the key jobs of recruitment is to avoid that situation occurring in the first place. So that's why the focus on taking, taking the time to find the right people. Particularly, again, we're not a large organization. Mm. We're, we're, so if you think about it, um, every one individual in the organization has a large impact on values, behaviors, culture, and outcomes within an organization, as opposed to, say, our IBM, where to go from 100,000 to 100,001 people, well, mm. the, there's a dilution yeah. by, the, by numbers and hours. 
um, at any one point in time, we flex sort of across the different businesses, say 70 people. Yeah. So it's much more. It is, yeah. The, um, the good to great model, right, the Jim mm-hmm. Collins, chapter one, get the right people on the bus. Yeah. And then that's exactly what you're saying from a recruitment. It all stems with the, the business that you want to be and who you're looking to bring in at that particular point. So thank you for pointing that out. I want to just pick on the CEO role. We talked about the um, unpopular decision. Uh, For me, I'm really interested in your view. You talked about being um, almost the janitor cleaning up the mess. We're talking about making those unpopular decisions. What are the traits that you believe a really successful CEO should have when managing a business? Openness, I think, is probably one of the key characteristics. Um, uh, and with openness, openness to new ideas, openness to being challenged. Um, we are very dialectic mm-hmm. in our in our approach. Um, and so if you walked into a meeting, um, it might seem like we're all fighting with one another sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, but, uh, but in fact, we're, we're attacking the issue and we're really interrogating things. That requires a level of confidence and trust and res- mutual respect yeah. um, across the board with one another. But that truly underpins, particularly within the senior management of the organization, the approach to decision-making. So I think openness is critical. I think a hunger for learning, mm-hmm. uh, uh, no matter which industry sector you're involved in um, right now, there is enormous change going on at any one point in time. And in our particular sectors, I mentioned, these are very long projects where we create assets that are supposed to have lives that go on for 50 to and more years afterwards. Yeah. So to understand the, the, the future landscape of the projects you're creating and how they need to respond to that um, requires you to want to learn and understand the impact of the broader economy on our particular sector. Healthcare is probably for us the 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 uh, pinnacle mm. of that in terms of understanding both in terms of changes of model of care across the healthcare center to the impact of technology to demographic change um, and being able to synthesize that. So I'd say that that, that hunger for learning is underpins yeah, it as well. Absolutely. When you talk about openness, um, do you wrap that up in a in a cotton in, in the cotton wool of self awareness? As well, because you can, we see from time after time leaders who are open to listening to ideas, but then just make the decision that of what they believe is to be true anyway. I, uh, when the facts change, I reserve my right to change my mind. Yeah, uh, is probably the the the, um, the at least I hope so. Yeah, right. So That's right. Uh, others can probably judge that better <laughs> uh, for me, but I genuinely, uh, I genuinely avoid getting myself into a position where I can't change my mind okay. yeah. uh, because I've just learned that the facts often do change and you need to be able to respond to a dynamic situation. Well, look, we're seeing that through and through from the government, just even managing through this pandemic, right, where every day new information comes out, new facts and things are changing. But the the ability for the greater society um, to understand that things are constantly changing and accept it is quite tough and we see that in business quite a fair bit as well where the 
unpopular decision is made based on some new facts and some decisions need to be made where you know there's going to be some repercussions do you believe that the toughest thing about being a ceo or a senior leader whether you're in government whether you're in business whether you're in a family however it might be do you believe that the adaptability of change is one of those more important behaviors unquestionably unquestionably in terms of but and i again i can't speak for every industry sector because mm-hmm. i haven't been involved in but i know in in the in the space that we play in it's critical um, and it requires a certain mindset again coming back to this the recruitment the thematic people not everybody's comfortable with that yeah some yeah. people like certainty some people are looking for um, an empty inbox when they go home every night and a yeah. clean desk yeah. and and a degree of certainty over what it is they're being asked to do and there is a fun- and there's still a role in organizations for those types of functions but if you want to be part of the growth of an organization um, managing uncertainty and complexity is is central to success and I think that's how we seek to distinguish ourselves as an organization is our ability to synthesize complexity and develop solutions for multiple outcomes and for multiple stakeholders simultaneously. One last behavior I want to pick on, and you and I have spoken about this uh, previously in, in previous conversations, integrity as a leader. Can you give me your thoughts or give us your thoughts on what it means to, to lead with integrity? Um, for me, in terms of integrity, uh, which needs to be at the heart of everything we do, it really is about not shying away from the tough conversations. It's about showing people the, the respect to be honest with them about situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about demonstrating that in everything that we do. Uh, it is, we place trust in our people, but more importantly, so many organizations place trust in us. The projects we're involved in are hundreds of millions of dollars Mm. of other people's money. And we are um, ultimately aware of that on many different fronts. And that was instilled to me by some of the great people I worked with in money management, where often we were dealing with superannuation money, for example. So what was always instilled is mums and dads, if you will, have entrusted us to make decisions that are in their best interests, Mm. right? You know, don't break that trust easily. Mm. Show the integrity needed. It's um, it's central to leadership. Absolutely. Mm. So let's talk about commercial in general. You talk about we work on these long projects. Before we get into some of those projects, I'm really interested in the Le- corny one that, that's been going on. It's about long projects. That was 1989. 1989 is yeah. uh, when the shut their doors. Yeah, that is. I was in year 12. Yeah, that's a very, (laughs) I was four years old. (laughs) It's very long time. So I I want to, um, I want to talk about commercial in general, but I want to ask the question. Everyone kind of understands the commercial piece. Talk to us about the general piece. (laughs) What what is the general that comes into it all? So it's a great name, isn't it? Yeah, Some people, I think, sometimes think we're an insurance company. Well, well, it opens the doors to do anything. So um, Commercial in General was founded by, um, by Jamie McClurg, um, and he had a business associate at the time, Anthony Catenari. Um, and they, highly entrepreneurial, highly competent people in their, in their 20s, as they were at the time, uh, when, when they set it up. And, and really, Jamie's um, came out of a, a construction background and, and, and 
has a creativity for design and development, which I've never seen before. I, I frankly stand in awe of it a lot of the time. Um, and so a, a keen eye for construction and development. And really, um, if, I, if I put it in these sort of terms, from an early age, they would take their construction business, they would turn those profits into a development opportunity. And the development opportunity allowed them then to begin to take on asset ownership. And so version 1.0, if you will, of commercial in general, probably extended up to about 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. um, where that process of wealth creation and constant reinvestment in the business led to the South Australian Police Headquarters, okay, right. um, which was, the, which was um, probably the, the biggest project they had done at the time. Um, and we still have, we still own the police building, police headquarters okay, right. uh, today, retain that on balance sheet. Um, but that that type of development introduces you into a new level of complexity, a new level of risk management, a new level of transactional counterparties. And 2.0, if you will, has been our growth since then, which is where we have focused on being really a private developer that is of institutional grade in terms of investment grade. And we have at different times partnered with um, the likes of Dex's, which is a large listed company, John Holland, um, uh, Straits out of uh, Singapore. So we've built really in a private business an institutional set of processes mm-hmm. and capabilities. That means that we can have as our counterparties those larger institutional counterparts. That has allowed us to work on larger projects such as Calvary Hospital, such as the Australian Bragg Centre, such as 88 O'Connell, mm-hmm. um, all of which. Um, but at the heart of it, um, as well, the family office still is a very large asset owner in and of its own right. And so we, we sort of eat what we make. Yeah. It's a brilliant business model, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It, it's fantastic. And um, it's, it's really, um, it's, a, it's a unique set of capabilities within our organization. And I think one of our um, ingredients for success is, if you will, the talent within the core leadership team. I'm, I'm very privileged to be surrounded by the talent that, that I get the opportunity to work with in our, because at the heart development, um, it's far more contractual than people may understand. Mm. Um, a transaction like Calvary, just to bring it to financial close, is 75 separate contracts, 2,000 pages of legal agreements, all bespoke negotiated yeah, wow. with a variety of counterparties. So having a transactions team um, that's capable of managing that complexity in-house for a developer our size is quite is quite unique. Our project management team, um, who then basically take the promises, if you will, that are embedded in those contracts and realize them in physical form, um, is uh, is another core capability in the organization. Um, so we're we're very blessed to have that sort of talent. And um, not that I'm making too much of a plug, but one of the interesting things, because we are uh, at heart a meritocracy. But I think right now we're 70% female in terms of okay. our organization, which makes us quite unique in the sense of for development and construction. But um, my general counsel, senior legal advisor, head of project management, chief financial officer, all of my direct reports are actually uh, female. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. I reckon I'll beat you on that statistic. <laughs> I'd say we'd be around, well, would be Gab's about 80%, 90% female. I think out of 20-odd people and there's three Three men in our team, yeah. so uh, yeah, we're uh, we're in the same realm as, as you, which is great. Um, the 
I want to I want to touch on some of the key projects, such as the Bragg Center. The it's the oh, can you explain to me the proton therapy sure, piece? It's sure. one of the very first in Australia. It's very interesting work. It's it's currently in construction and going to be amazing for South it, Australia it, and Australia. It is. It's 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 an amazing project. It's a good example of that. Um, distilling um, and managing complexity that we, t- that we talked about uh, earlier. So at its heart, um, the Bragg Center will be um, a next generation cancer treatment facility. So typically um, uh, cancer patients will receive radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I think most people know somebody who's had cancer and therefore probably someone who's had radiotherapy. And at its essence, to take people back to, to year 11 physics, um, Radiotherapy typically involves light, so it's photons, and um, they are the photon treatment that you typically get is imprecise in the sense that you'll often get scarring and you'll um, hurt surrounding tissues, Mm -hmm. and the photons pass completely through the body. So, in essence, you're smearing a tumor with a uh, a radioactive beam of light. Mm. Um, and that's, for example, why you can't give it to children because the incidence of secondary cancers is extremely high with radiotherapy, for example. Okay. You can't use radiotherapy in um, complex spaces like on organs, head and neck cancers, for example, yeah. or on, say, um, sensitive organs. Yeah. So it's limited in its use because of the nature of the beam that's being generated. Yeah. Proton therapy is just that. So a proton is a hydrogen atom with the electron removed. So essentially you start with hydrogen and you strip away the electron and you get to a positively charged proton. You spin that around a, in this case, a synchrotron Mm -hmm. uh, to get it to one third the speed of light. And then you channel it down a beam to a precise point where you can uh, attack a tumor. The language of proton therapy is around um, a pencil beam and painting. Mm-hmm. So literally, with no um, surrounding tissue being impacted, you can just, over a series of treatments, individually pare back the tumor. Yeah, wow. So it is, um, it's an incredibly powerful tool. It will become um, the preferred treatment for pediatric cancers in Australia. Mm-hmm. And there's probably about 400 at least kids a year that will benefit in Australia from the center. And, and frankly, their lives can be saved with that. Um, and head and neck and other sort of complex cancers um, will be dealt with by proton therapy. It also has an extremely um, uh, high success rate in areas like left breast, so near the heart, mm-hmm. where you're trying to avoid that. So um, this technology has been around in the U.S. for 30 years. This is the first um, machine being delivered in Australia. Um, but proton therapy is now becoming, because of the um, phase three clinical trial results and, and, the, and the evidence that's built up over a long period of time being recognized um, as a superior treatment form. And so we would expect proton therapy to be rolled out across not just Australia, but Asia Pacific more generally. Is this, is, is, I know you mentioned it's been around for 30 years, but is this a game changer for cancer treatment here in Australia? It, it is, in terms of the arsenal of tools, the, the big ones are going to be uh, genomics and immunotherapy in terms of, let's say, medical oncology, mm-hmm. uh, and in terms of uh, radiation oncology, proton therapy, probably the two twins. I mean, 
you're probably aware of this, but for the sake of it, we, we talk about cancer. Using the term cancer is, is a class of diseases mm. as varied as sport, yeah. as bowling is to, you know, abseiling. Correct. So, yeah. so the, it's horses for courses in many respects, but the, in terms of the arsenal of tools available, proton therapy will absolutely be one of the, the next generation tools available. I love it. And commercial in general's uh, int- not interest, but part in a part way. of that is it, is it design as well and bringing the, in this technology? Is it doing all so that research? Is that your? We've partnered with SAMRI um, since 2017, South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. Um, and when we stepped into the project, SAMRI had an ambition. Um, but we have really traveled the journey alongside SAMRI on all aspects. So that went to um, right to running the selection process for the equipment provider, um, uh, lobbying government for both the funding for the purchase, the federal government for the purchase, um, lobbying uh, Medicare for the inclusion of the treatment um, uh, as a rebatable mm-hmm. claim, um, the design the construction, the commissioning, the financing, um, soup to nuts we've been involved in. So um, this type of project is closer to infrastructure sort of delivery than classic real estate delivery because it's got such a strong operational focus Mm -hmm. and it's a highly bespoke shell that we're creating for this activity to occur in. Um, So you need to have a deep operational understanding um, in order to successfully deliver it. You compare that now, I'm not putting, you know, typical apartment development, right? You have a standard design. Mm-hmm. People might change the curtains, change the lights, yeah. change the stove. Those Full are, time stays the same. That's right. Yeah. This is a, uh, you know, a two meter thick concrete bunker with a thousand penetrations running through it. Um, every one of which needs to be done with millimeter precision in order to withstand uh, 330 uh, mega electron volts of energy being directed within the room with no radiation leakage. Yeah, so right. it's a very different set of parameters. And it's it has been an effort. Um, the design team is global, um, but ultimately led by South Australian talent, both in terms of our own capabilities, but also uh, the architects um, and the engineers and the like. So it's, there's been an enormous importation of learning into this community as a result of this project. Um, And on the basis that there's an expectation of 200 of these centers being built across Asia, um, there's an opportunity for us to be a center of excellence, for Adelaide to be a center of excellence for this type of technology. Um, And that's something that we're really keen to see happen. That's fantastic. Is that when you talk about the center of excellence and there's there's the... Some numbers been thrown around saying it's expected to deliver $1 billion worth of economic activity. Can you explain? That's just during the delivery period. So this is a $450 million development. Okay. Um, and, you know, the economic multiplier on construction tends to be three to one. Okay. And that's so just at its most basic level during the three-year period of the delivery of this project, it spins off a billion dollars yeah, in wow. activity. Um, it'll, you know at least 700 jobs are created during the delivery period. You then have um, essentially the value chain that's being created here is not just in the um, 
development phase, but it's in the operational phase. We have in South Australia um, the nation's leading radiation oncologists, um, some amazing people out there who I've had the privilege to get to know, Michael Peniman, Tian Lee, Peter Grayski. These are, these are radiation oncologists who are at the forefront of what they're doing and will be the people who will be carrying out the treatment on the patients. These are the people who are writing the honors courses um, for the yeah. university to deliver because we need to create the educational support. Each, you know, there's 50 people that will be employed in the center, decemetrists and medical physicists and radiation oncologists, radiation therapists, all of whom need to be um, trained and educated. And our ability to create that as a turnkey, and this is one of the unique um, I see benefits of working in a smaller city like Adelaide is because we're able to bring together that capability and talent. We all know each other to then look at other opportunities to see that as an export driven opportunity. The equipment provider Proton International, who are based out of Texas, um, I know are also keen to look at the opportunity to establish an advanced testing and training facility here, basically as their, as their flagship Asia Pacific headquarters. Um, right. And so that Very then good. creates started some of the building yeah. blocks. Um, there's there's some you know, and the reason I, I go on about that is to give you a, a comparative example. South Korea built a proton therapy center, mm -hmm. and then had nobody who could operate it. It was a, it was mothballed oh, almost right. from the outset yeah. because they just hadn't built that value chain yeah, from the yeah. outset. So you've thought about. Or dot of the I's and cross the T's, really. That's right. Yeah. And, the, and the people involved, as you can imagine, the projects like this are dependent upon an enormous talent pool to Absolutely. bring the different elements together. So there's no one person who can say, I own this project. Yeah. There are many hands involved in it. But what you have are people who have established relationships and, and mutual respect for one another in terms of what they bring to the table and openness to work together under a common cause. So at a distance, it sounds like we're a real estate developer. Mm -hmm. But when you really get to the heart of what we do, our job is to pull the elements of that project together mm. in a way that allows it to be materialized. And what's the evidence of that? The evidence of that is um, our, our ability to bring in a $450 million investor into the project, mm -hmm. $68 million from the federal government. Right, so these are people who have underwritten that and gone. Well, you guys do have the core, the core elements needed to see this project successful. So that's the that's that's the element of project management in our organization that I think distinguishes us from typical development, if yeah, you will, in absolutely. that regard. I love and it. Healthcare, healthcare is is fascinating it in is, that regard. Absolutely. The I'm just interested in the commercial in general from a a family business point of view. What is the benefit from Staying as a family business as opposed to becoming a publicly listed company. So um, the the number one is um, the ability to be dynamic mm. and responsive. So uh, we, in order to win new business, we often have to be able to respond to changing market conditions in real time. Mm -hmm. Um, and development lends itself to that sort of environment. Publicly listed entities have a whole series of appropriate checks and balances for publicly listed companies, which are driven by you know, the, the interests of shareholders, mm -hmm. um, which don't allow it to make those decisions yeah. in real time. In fact, they're deliberately designed to avoid making very fast real-time decisions. Mm. 
So there's our business um, and fundamentally, it's not just the fact that we're private, it's the fact that we're privately owned by, frankly, someone of the caliber of Jamie and, and his wife, Louisa, who are both incredibly um, intelligent and talented in and of their own rights and in their own domains and yeah. separately in their own domains. And so that combination is extremely powerful for us to be able to, to respond in the marketplace. Brilliant. I love it. Now you are, you've been in South Australia since 93, did I hear you say? Uh, 93 to 04 and then from 2015. Okay. Well, we'll claim you as one of our own. Is Absolutely. What, is what we do, Absolutely. right? We- <laughs> the accent should give it away, really. <laughs> We're just going to claim it. That's what we do with everyone. So you're in, in that group as well. I know you are proud of, of South We choose Australia. to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, so, and I know that you're really passionate about seeing this state flourish. I want to dive into that a little sure. bit in, in what your thoughts are around everything that's happening in, in the moment. Um, you know, we're talking election, there's Omicron variant coming out, like well, that's come out and you know, ravage the world. There's people coming back into the CBD. How do we revitalize? There's workforce shortage. Like there's everything, all these. What's going on? What's going on? And, <laughs> I, and I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about how South Australia has gone through and what is your thoughts on how we flourish from here? Sure. So I might start that just the lens, that I guess, if it's not obvious that, that we sort of look through this on is um, the projects we create are projects rooted in place. Mm-hmm. So I can't pick up 88 O'Connell and move it to Collins Street mm-hmm. in Melbourne because I go, that's a better performing economy. Mm-hmm. So we're we're fixed. We create fixed assets. So yeah. we have a business interest as well as a personal interest in seeing our community thrive. Mm-hmm. But organizationally, um, the, uh, Jamie and Louisa are absolutely committed to this community. They could be living anywhere, frankly, yeah. and they want to be here. And so they also have – so that – is imported into the values of the organization to see our local community thrive. I have a strong view that secondary cities, and I don't mean secondary in any derogatory sense, but just in terms of size um, of cities, uh, have and have the opportunity to outperform larger cities in a post-COVID environment. And I think that secondary cities have shown their benefit in that regard. It translates often into benign statements like um, we're the third most livable city, mm. which is sort of you know a tagline. But in terms of the value that is in that, I think it comes a lot into network. I'm a big believer in network. Um, and what that means is in a city like Adelaide, you can walk down the street and see the people that are relevant to you. Mm-hmm. And you can connect with people easily. You see them at the soccer games on the Saturday yeah. mornings. You you run into them regularly. And, and that informal connection and the maintenance of that network allows you to harness the talent within that network mm-hmm. for a common outcome. And that is different. It also demands a level, I believe, of integrity in dealings that is not necessarily evident in larger cities. If you, I'll put it into the vernacular, if you burn someone to Adelaide, Mm. everyone knows it and everyone knows it pretty quickly. You can get away with that in New York, in Manhattan, right? Because because the networks are diffused. So I think that 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 brings with it, again, an advantage in dealings with one another. Um, So... Starting point, I guess, would be I think there's a comparative advantage of secondary cities. I think in the invest, investment terms, what you're seeing is um, a closing off on pricing differentials. 
So what we've seen is a massive inflow of capital into Adelaide. When I, when I came back to Adelaide in 2015 and we were marketing Calvary um, at the time as an investment opportunity, I often had to start with, where's Adelaide? Mm. That's the place where you get your wine from. You know, the Australian wine you love? It yeah. comes from here. Yeah. Um, that is no longer the case. Which is great. It, it is. And very exciting. Adelaide, is an, Adelaide its attributes are as a very stable long-term investment market, which is really in a low um, interest rate um, and I think longer term, once we see through what I think is more cyclical than long-term structural inflation, will be typified, means Adelaide will remain attractive as an investment destination as well. Primarily because I think it's a lot anchored by government spending. Mm. So there's a very solid base to the underlying economy here, which is ultimately propped up by public, public spending which means that you get less volatility in the market. And so Adelaide has been a typical slow and steady. That's kind of what the market wants right now, mm. reliability of income. There's mm. a worldwide shortage of long-term reliable income. That's why you have a savings glut that you have right now. You have an aging demographic that's seeking long-term income, pension funds and the like. Yep. And we play nicely into that thematic. So from a capital markets perspective, I think we're set up really, really well. Um, I think the only thing that's holding us back is um, our, our, our final demand needs to be supported by population growth. Mm. Um, and we have seen, and this is why I'm optimistic, one of the benefits of COVID has been people have stayed. Mm. <laughs> people couldn't get out. Yeah. So as you would probably appreciate, up until if you went from like 2009 to 2019 and you took 18 to 35-year-olds and you put filled the Adelaide Oval with them. That's how many left yeah. over that period. Yeah, right? it's crazy. It is, and because that's ultimately, we, we created the talent and then we exported it to another market. Now we have the opportunity to retain that talent. Um, and they have been staying. And the micro enterprises and the, the flagship of a lot 14 and what people are talking about there, people like Terry Sweeney, who I know you've had on, yep. the work that people like Terry are doing, is creating the opportunity set to retain those people. In our business, the urban form needs to respond to that. We need to give people the, the, the places to, to live, to work, to recreate, that support, that sort of new urban experience. 88 O'Connell, frankly, is an expression okay. in many respects of that. So I think what we need to talk about is not, there's the retention of talent, and then there's the recruitment of new talent in. Um, and that, I think, all the parts are there it's almost a marketing job in some respects. If you think mm. what Kennett did in the 90s in terms of promoting Melbourne and yeah, Victoria, right? Absolutely. It was very much the ability to do that. And so, again, referring to the enormous talent you have on this podcast, but Bruce <laughs> and the Committee for Adelaide. Yeah. Well, that's why we're involved in the Committee for Adelaide, because we recognize the job that Bruce and, and the team are trying to do there is about really putting that flag post up and saying this is yeah. a place to be able to come into. Um, with the capital coming, if the if the if the talent can see the capital, then I think the opportunity sets there, which is why I think some of the focus and some of the policy conversation needs to be on how we attract capital into those growth areas. So, early stage venture capital and private equity opportunities, I think, is really where there's there's a gap and something that needs to be filled here as part of the policy prescription in order to retain and attract the new talent in, which will support the growth into the city. I'm not an advocate for, you know, a 4 million Adelaide, mm. but I think 2 million is actually sort of realistically yeah. what the target should be for Adelaide. 
Bernard Salt did some oh, work for, on this. For, for, for how long? Forever? For, like, what is your... So realistically, if we had net new migration of around twelve to 15,000 a year, which is yeah. nothing. Not, not that much. Right? Um, that lays the groundwork for a two million. Yeah. Right? So yeah. It's, it's, that's sort of the, the, a medium-sized city. The problem with Adelaide has historically been it's been too small, so it's uneconomic. So the, the incremental cost of infrastructure, for example, in a large geographic footprint mm. is too high. It's subscale mm. in many respects. Um, but as an organic urban form, a two million starts to get you right probably at the optimized. Mm. Um, sort of you maintain a quality of life, which is, which is second to none, but you have your um, scale, your economies of scale that, work yeah. better at that size. That's amazing. Yeah, what is... Look, I'm a passionate South Australian through and through, and I, I'm really very optimistic for what the future looks like. What are your thoughts around the next five to ten years for South Australia coming out of this pandemic? Um, I, th- I think that I think the governments of both persuasions have the economic pillar strategy correct, which is really around call it defence space and health yep. as the two major anchors yep. for for springboarding economic growth and activity in. Um, I think that the um, the blip, the, the, the pivot from the diesel subs and, and Naval into the into Orcus and what that means in terms of the nuclear sub capabilities, mm-hmm. um, if executed properly, is an enormous capability because to begin to build a nuclear capability mm. in, in the state is a phenomenal um, opportunity. The, the complexity that goes with that, the talent that's required for that, it's you know, huge. we will lift our collective IQ substantially as a state if we're to execute uh, on We've that. had uh, Andy Keogh, who's CEO of Saab on the show. Incredibly smart no, guy. No one more <laughs> equipped to talk about subs than him. Absolutely. And uh, recently had, when, when the announcement was made, we had that chat and he, he was saying this is one of the best things for South Australia mm-hmm. that moving towards should have done should have done it sooner is what he was yeah, no, yeah I I I would wholeheartedly endorse Andy's view on that yeah he's brilliant what what does I know you're interested in politics obviously given your background and everything like that and I'm just interested I don't want this to become a political discussion but how have you felt that the government have handled the recent pandemic and what are your thoughts of the up and coming election within South Australia if if you are open to talk about it. Sure. Um, look, I think um, there's a, if you look not just in South Australia, but I'll say South Australia, Australia more generally, mm-hmm. New Zealand, Canada, mm-hmm. um, all took a similar approach, which is I'm going to defer um, decision-making to medical expertise for a period of time, which I think at, let's call that phase one of the pandemic, mm-hmm. when we had much less understanding of what we were dealing with. Yeah was entirely appropriate. I think the struggle that governments have had is how do they reset decision-making and governance within their own organizations, if you will, in the wake of a recognition, A, this is not a blip, this is a structural long-term change. We're now going to be living with COVID for the rest of our lives, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And how do we reassume authority and control over decision-making, Yes, having deferred that decision-making to essentially health technocrats. Yes. That balancing act is incredibly difficult against a community 
that is bombarded with information and misinformation. Yeah. Um, so I don't envy political decision makers in trying to manage that balance right now. Um, what's what it? I think polit- in a political cultural sense, the community, if in its most generalized form, is overly focused on safety and not risk management. Mm-hmm. And so there's the the lexicon of the government's job is to keep me safe. Taken to its ex, taken to its extreme is an extremely dangerous idea. Yeah. It's how totalitarianism yeah. ultimately evolves. Correct. Absolutely. And so and you have the agonist antagonist approach where you you hold one thing back and it affects five other things down the road here. That, that's absolutely right. And so um, my own personal view is we. Um, uh, I won't, maybe I would say rip the Band-Aid off. I think we are doing that. I think we are doing better than most places in managing that balance mm. um, and managing that narrative. Um, the election is, elections are always uh, interruptions because it forces governments back to the preservation of government and Correct. power. And, and we can't ignore the fact that politicians seek to get reelected. So mm. that requires them to um, balance their senses of what I think is right despite where popular opinion sits mm. with popular opinion. Uh, but as I say overall, I think I think we're doing better than most. Absolutely. Does the potential for minority government, which is looking like the way it might go, is, is that going to be a detriment to South Australia? So um, I agree with the first part of your statement. I, I actually struggle... Uh, to understand how anyone can win a majority mm. um, given the current state of play and given the number of independents in the agree. House yeah. right now. Which is why <laughs> it's a fascinating <laughs> dynamic. Um, when I worked, I mean, I, I reflect back to when I worked for John Olson, mm-hmm. he was managing a minority government, mm-hmm. Carney Maywald, yep. Roy McHugh, and Mitch Williams, um, effectively conservative, independent liberals and nationals who provided him support but then provided the same support to my grant. Mm. And so the state has a history of conservative independence being prepared to work with labor. Mm. And I look at Peter Malinowskis and see a, uh, a pretty centrist labor figure. Um, and I think it's going to be quite an interesting uh, negotiation in terms of who forms next government. Yeah. So it, it, it is an open question. Mm. It really is. And I, yeah, we won't go down. I, I don't sit on either one side. It's just, it, for me, it's... For us, it's about who's got the best ideas. When you, when you strip it back, yeah. it's not about, and, and I think this is true of the business community generally, um, it's not about flying flags for one set of colors or another set of colors. It's really about recognizing that both political parties are capable of generating highly talented people who bring good ideas to the table Correct. and they should be given an airing and a hearing and people should be making choices based upon who's got the best ideas based upon how we take the state forward. Um, the, the idea of political parties locked in ideologies is actually a thing of the past. It has to now, be. You could yeah. argue that that's a good or bad thing, yeah. but um, if you look both nationally at the national stage, you look at the, the, the state stage, indeed you look at the in Western democratic senses at the international stage, ideology 
has been left behind for substitutes. Now, it's worst form. It's, it's what we would call populism, probably, is, has been a replacement. Yeah. But in other characterizations have been centrist mm. in their approach, which is trying to strike pragmatic balances. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I am conscious of your time. We have uh, gone over the hour. We're, we're about the over the hour mark now, Gabs, around that. Yeah. Pass. So we've uh, time flies. Time does fly. <laughs> I, I am very curious. I'll ask a couple of questions before we jump into our quick fire uh, questions at the end. And I, I'm really interested in you personally and your productivity levels. How, what does your life look like when you are at your most productive? Life at my most productive, and by productive I mean across all elements of my life, uh, not just you not feel just, like you're in flow state. Yeah, yeah. Um, would be characterized by uh, the simple things: uh, getting a good night's sleep, yeah. finding time for exercise, mm -hmm. and a bit of me time to keep the head clear. Mm -hmm. um, allows me to, I find, make me much more productive across the board with everyone that matters to me. Brilliant. And when those things are not in in check. Um, and, you know, the, the, the worst example of me was international travel, mm -hmm. where you're constantly jet lagged, you're out for dinners five nights a week, yeah. you're waking up tired, you're never fully onto your game because you don't know what, which time zone you're waking up into. Yeah. That compared to the ability to live in this state, in this city, and have the opportunities that we have in the organization I have the privilege of leading now and living in this city, the two things could not be more yeah. stark. Seven hours sleep, six hours. Seven, seven, seven is seven, the sweet spot. Seven is the sweet spot. <laughs> I struggle to get there though. Do you? I, yeah, I always wake up around probably six, six and a half. But yeah. I, I aim for seven, and <laughs> I, my brain and my body tells me otherwise. But you, we've talked about managing your own mental health and self care from a meditation point of view. Is that something hmm. you do practice? Uh, it is. It is. Uh, it's something later in life um, mm. that both both April and I have discovered. Um, uh, I was initially skeptical, to tell you the truth, because I didn't quite understand it, and so had more of a um, a reference point in meditation, more coming from, uh, let's say, uh, religious sort of Buddhist sort of yep. principles, um, uh, spiritual, shall we say, as opposed to meditation, which is really about focusing focusing on consciousness and and the way that we actually exercise our brain, mm. if you will. And so uh, I do find great. Um, satisfaction yeah. in it. In, in it almost feels like you just switch the computer off and on again, isn't it? In, in, it's very hard to do. Yeah, it's it, it's it it, the hardest thing to do is to not think. Yeah, it, is. it sounds it's it sounds horrible. trite, but it is. It's extremely there's, difficult. There's a guy that I follow religiously, and he's not a religious person, but I just follow him. His name's Naval Ravikant. He's mm -hmm. got. He's been on many podcasts. He's written. He's got a book like a, someone's written the almanac of Naval yeah. because his teachings are so fantastic. And he says the number one thing that you can do to control your mind is to sit for an hour each day, one hour by yourself with nothing on. And he goes, you don't try to do anything but just sit there yeah. and you will be a mess in your own mind. And then a bit eventually you'll gain, you'll gain control of it. And it is a long-term practice because half an hour is not enough. It needs to be an hour a day. And I haven't tried it but just 
I believe I'll get there one day. I don't have the lifestyle that can give me an hour a day, but it's one thing that you're right, to absolutely stop your mind and, and, and almost switch off and switch on again is one of the most difficult things to do. Yeah, and it actually challenges you to open up and, and think about the world in a slightly different way. So when you actually start to think about consciousness as a concept, mm. we're moving way off track here. No. But, but um, when you, th- that is a, an area both of, intellectual stimulation for me mm-hmm. um, but also in terms of uh, discipline and and creating a clear mind which actually helps me d- during the rest of my day mm. um, it's something that the second half of my life so to speak is something I want to spend more time yeah. focused on than I had the opportunity to do in the first do you do time. like a mini keep during the like a mini uh, piece of meditation during the day or before you head into a meeting or is it just something you concentrate in the morning or night or uh typically um night right typically uh at night sort of not too late at night mm-hmm. for obvious reasons you fall asleep yeah not <laughs> uh have tried it though during the day yeah and it, and it can work it can, it can yeah. absolutely yeah. absolutely particularly um if you're dealing with stressful situations where you want to make sure that the, the decisions you're making and the statements you're making are coming from a rational perspective and not from an emotive one, mm. I find that it's an incredibly powerful Absolutely. tool. Mm. Do you do anything else like journal or in regards to your thoughts? And, and, and uh, Mind mapping is a tool okay. that, that I've um, been using for over 20 years, yeah. um, which I find. An, Can uh, you explain that? To- um, so mind mapping is essentially a way of capturing ideas on a page. I first got introduced to it when I did speed reading mm-hmm. in university. Mm-hmm. And so um, what went alongside speed reading techniques was the idea of how you distill your ideas into a, into a map. So basically from um, most general to the more specific ideas out on branches. So it literally is a, is a series of twigs off a tree, if you will, mm-hmm. you'll often see my maps expressed as. But to be able to capture complexity and distill things into a logical sequence without writing a treaty on it, it's a, it's a very simple on a single page narrative of any one particular set of complexities that mm. you're dealing with. So I find that incredibly powerful. What um, would a typical trunk look like of that mind map? So if I'm, if I'm looking at um, a, a project um, so take a project like we can talk about 88 O'Connell Street yeah. where you've got um, multiple elements to it ranging from managing court appeals through to managing banks, managing purchasers, managing planning authorities, managing design consultants, managing builders. At any one point in time, you have significant interdependencies mm. that, are, that are running through a project like that. And what it allows you to do is break out each individual element into their constituent parts, and then identify interdependencies. Now, you can do that in detailed programs, and mm-hmm. we do do that. But for me and what I do, and yeah. trying to maintain, if you will, 40,000 feet over everything, and then dive into the detail when you need to, it creates those early warning radars. It helps distill mm-hmm. priorities for me by being able to synthesize things into a very simplistic sort of presentation. It's also a way of conveying complexity to others. I think that um, one of the great challenges in, in, in today's modern corporate environment is everybody's dealing with complexity. Mm. The challenge is can you communicate complexity in a way that people simply understand it? Mm. That's, that's the art form, yeah, I believe. In. Hmm. The, the, yeah. To some of the most renowned 
scientists and astrophysicists like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Cox and these are the likes who can take the most complex and turn it into a TV show that everyone loves and is blown away by is, is absolutely a skill set. Absolutely. The, um, the ruler on the knuckles instruction that I got from, um, from Peter Verwer actually on this one was no sentence should exceed 13 words. Yeah, there you go. That's brilliant. <laughs> And the two-second rule. Yeah. Don't say anything until it's traveled two seconds from yeah. your brain to your yeah. mouth. Think before you speak. That's something that my dad used to always tell me growing up. Daniel, it's funny think how the homespun advice actually bears fruit. <laughs> I know. It does. Excellent. All right. So we're just going to jump into some quick fire questions. Feel free to elaborate on some of these. They don't have to be. Well, I may say past, depending, yeah. on, what you, depending <laughs> yeah. on what you ask well, me. <laughs> we're big readers here at Creating Synergy Podcast mm-hmm. and Synergy IQ. We are always looking for learning, growth, development. For me, I would be really interested in asking you two questions about books. What are you reading right now? And what is one book that you would recommend to leaders looking to grow and develop in their career? Hmm. Okay. So in terms of organizations and understanding organizations and managing strategic planning and change, a book called Rapid Transformation um, is probably been the most effective um, book that's been supported to me by something we didn't get a chance to talk about, which mm-hmm. was a strategic planning tool and framework and facilitation process mm-hmm. that, that I've been instructed oh. in over, over, the, over the years um, by a guy by the name of Kevin Nuttall out of yeah. Sydney, Watermark Consulting, and they, it's a proprietary system. Incredibly powerful. Yeah. I've brought it into most organizations I've worked with or sit on the board of, in fact. And oh, I'm going to pick your brain about that. Extremely, use, <laughs> extremely useful. In terms of books I'm reading right now, right now I'm listening for the second time because uh, I do a lot of audiobooks. Yes. Uh, Sam Harris, The Moral Landscape. Oh, yeah. Um, I like Sam. Yeah. No, so do I. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Sam Harris, both in terms of the political work he does, but also the the waking up and, and meditation. Yeah, I use the meditation app as well. Yeah. I use that in Headspace. I kind of cross yeah, between, cross between the two. Um, uh, so the, that is actually what I'm reading right now. I just finished before that Neil Ferguson's Doom, oh, yes. which, um, again, I've read most of Neil Ferguson's yeah, you, work. You've mentioned Neil Ferguson. That was another one. It was about his, the his, his history, if I remember. History of Money. He's uh, Neil Ferguson's published yeah. tw- 20 books. Yeah, he's brilliant. Um, no, was by now. One. I remember you yeah. mentioned to me last And time. the other one I'm listening to at the simultaneously is Christopher Hitchens' Hitch 22. Oh, okay. And um, Christopher Hitchens, I just, you know, we lost him too young. He's an absolute genius. Mm. Um, I love the acerbic wit. Yeah. It's uh, unparalleled. So transform. let's just recap on some of those books. Transformation. Rapid Transformation. Rapid Transformation. We'll put it in the show notes. Gabs is writing them down as we speak. <laughs> Rapid Transformation. Uh, the Neil, Moral Landscape. The Moral Landscape. Doom by Doom. Neil Ferguson. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. We'll get them in the show notes. Uh, any other podcasts that you listen to other than this one, of course? Of course, this one. <laughs> um, so Waking Up. Uh, uh, waking up and making sense are are two absolute go tos. Making sense, particular. yeah, um, I really like. Sense. Uh, locally, um, between the lines, so it's mm-hmm. an ABC podcast yeah. on international affairs, and and I find that really good. I do listen to Saturday Extra, so Geraldine Doog. Um, okay, uh, I think she's uh, she's an incredibly um, articulate and, and well spoken and considered uh, journalist. So listen to that. And for entertainment, I'm a bit of a classics fan, so. I'm currently listening to Emperors of Rome, oh, which wow. is which is a, a professor out of La Trobe University, actually, 
um, who does most of that. Yeah. Do you, have you ever listened to Dan Carlin's podcast? Dan Carlin's? Yes, yeah. I have. Um, and um, also, I don't know if you've listened to the history of Rome, like uh, Duncan, no. which is 155 episodes, which yeah, sort wow. of traverses from Romulus and Remus through to the final Romulus. And you've listened to 155. Mm, wow. Yeah, absolutely. How do you ma- this is not in the quick fire questions, but I've, I'm going to ask this. How do you manage? Because I, look, I make time for reading and listening or audiobooking or whatever every single day. Um, and really I base that depend on mood, what I'm looking for, whether I'm thinking about strategy, whether I'm yeah. thinking about my own personal growth, where I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know, or I, or I do want something for entertainment value. I pick up a different book every single day. I've got five or six books on the go at any given time. How do you manage your learning and how much time and effort do you put in daily? So it, it varies um, as, as with most things. Right now I, I have the, um, the pleasure of commuting from Normanville to Adelaide every day uh, while, while our house is under renovation. Yeah, great. Um, so that gives me it plenty does, of time yeah. to listen to listen That's to the podcasts. That's the best thing about having a bit of a longer drive. <laughs> That's right. So, so I'm privileged in that respect. Um, Otherwise, it's often on the weekends, mm. um, literally mowing the lawn or, yeah. or doing yeah. whatnot. Now I have you know um, noise reduction headphones on yeah. and listening to things that, that sort of keep me engaged. You make it part of your life. That's exactly, exactly. the best way. Yeah. What is one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? Um, I come back to, to Mark Ford's lesson, um, and that is really about creating the boundaries in life in order to, to really make sure that work does not dominate unnecessarily into the private domain. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, that's the hardest, been the hardest lesson for me and the one that I continue to need to be yeah. educated on, to be perfectly honest. It's one that I'm so interested <laughs> in, interested in mastery in that yeah. realm, but I don't believe it's there. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't think there's an end point. I think no. it's a journey. I, yeah. think, I think fundamentally and, and in what we do, there's times when it's much easier to attain than when not. Mm. In other words, when it's on, it's on, and there's mm. not much you can do about it mm. sometimes. What I have learned over time is when it's not, don't fill it. Allow yourself the time yeah. uh, to fill it with other things that are, that are important. Excellent. What's some of the best advice you've ever received? Um, Probably some of the hardest advice I've ever received, but it's it's captured up in in this statement, which is, um, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. Um, okay. And in large organizations, that was probably a lesson mm. that I learned, which was because um, when you're in those organizations, and, and frankly, they're built for internal competition as well as external competition. Mm. How you, uh, when things are going wrong. Um, how you can be stranded as an orphan left holding the bag, to yeah, be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, that was probably one of the one of the harder lessons. Yeah, mm. it, absolutely true. <laughs> People turn their back. Correct. If you could invite three people for dinner, who would they be? Um, and we're assuming April is going to be there. Okay, so April's already at the table. Yeah. Perfect. So it's a dinner for five. That's right. Um, I think um, so. I'd go to Chris Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens would yeah. certainly be one person I'd love to have uh, dinner with. Um, I'd probably want someone from the Enlightenment period, um, and it could be even somebody like James Cook. I okay. think would be fascinating to get yeah. that sort of uh, perspective, yeah. and then probably someone out of the science domain. And that could be, 
I'd probably have to go Einstein. Four. <laughs> yeah. That'd be yeah, that's right. He could teach me about quantum mechanics. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure my brain could handle that. But, yeah. <laughs> but he just even as a philosopher, he was brilliant in the way Absolutely. his brain thought. Correct, yeah. If you had access to a time machine, where would you go? 2,500. Very specific. Why forward? And you're, you're one of the rare people that go forward. I'm so happy with that because I would as well. Everyone else goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to do, so I guess um, the child in me is fascinated by space mm, um, and by the universe um, and, and all things to do with that. And I think that over the next several hundred years, provided we don't destroy ourselves in the process, and the risk of that is greater than zero, mm-hmm. Um, I suspect by 2,500, we are doing uh, stellar travel on some description mm. um, and reasonably reasonably advanced by that time. Uh, and that, that is exciting. Is are, exciting. You, you're, are you excited about the Elon Musk push? Of, I, th- it, I think uh, peop- Elon Musk um, is exactly needed in this world. Correct. Um, and that's why I'm on board. He could be, and I know probably from a leadership aspect, I shouldn't look up to this guy, but because the way he he may treat some people, but in I don't think he pres- presents himself as a leader sometimes. Well, that's probably true. I think he too. presents himself more as an engineering entrepreneur, yeah, who's true. been shoved, who's been pigeonholed into running a public company, so yeah. he's got to take on a certain it is role. It, it is. This does come back to the. The technical brilliant jerk that you, you <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that we come up with someone like Elon, you kind of can turn a blind eye to. I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Anyway>. that's right. <laughs> that's probably that's probably true. But I think he probably thrives with a minimal amount of organization around him, mm. and he would say he wouldn't. He, his desire is to focus on the thing, yeah, not the people. That's true. Yeah. If you had one or could have one super. One superhero power. <laughs> what would it be? My superhero power? The power of flight. Yeah. I think would be pretty cool. It's a popular one. Yeah? <laughs> well, just it, everyone talks about being that's free. Right. And, well, that's right. And you have those dreams where you can fly. Right? Yeah. And they're pretty cool. So I'd have yeah, one of those. It would be good. <laughs> I always come back with teleportation though. If, if you want to be somewhere, you could uh, – that's true. But Get you can some, fly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, take longer. <laughs> now, I don't know if you came prepared and feel free to push this one aside, but I do love this question. Is What's your best dad joke? Do you know, I asked the kids this this morning <laughs> and I was heartbroken. They said, you know what, dad? You don't really have a dad joke. Oh, no. <laughs> No, you, there's something you got to wear in your that's, that's in right. the pool. The epitaph. <laughs> that's right. Here lies Dad. No joke applied. Uh, no, we'll let you slide on that one. Not a problem. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for everything you and the team and Jamie and, and the team are doing at, at Commercial in general. Obviously, setting South Australia up, specifically South Australia up in in, in for the and for the future and bringing some really great technologies and assets. And uh, commercial aspects to this to this great state. So thank you for all. Likewise, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for doing this. This is an excellent platform you've created and, and really appreciate all the time and effort you put into it.
Brilliant. Thanks again. We'll uh, catch you next time, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care guys. All the best. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.